when you describe your experience around Sunday, that's what it is. I mean, we've all experienced that. You know, it gets to be Sunday afternoon. You start thinking about what your Monday morning is going to look like. And that those thoughts start to ruminate and even start perseverating over the idea of, gosh, I'm going to have to get up and go to work. I know what's waiting for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's the inability to be able to put work in a perfect place, I think, that leads to that sense of dread. Work does not have to be a miserable place. It does not have to be something that you really dislike doing. There are plenty of people who have found a way of enjoying their work. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work that are confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people. The first order of business today is a huge shout out and thank you to all our listeners, members of our Googleization community, partners, and guests who have helped us at Geek Skeezers and Googleization be recognized as one of the top 100 podcasts of all time by Good Pods. We just learned that this morning. So thank you very much, uh, which is the perfect setup for our episode today. Have you ever woken up in the morning feeling dread about going to work? Well, you're not alone. You've heard us talk about loneliness and burnout and employee well-being and employee experience last few weeks in the workplace. But today we're going to dig into another epidemic crippling productivity, well-being, growth, and innovation at work, the epidemic of dread. So joining us in a few minutes will be Sandra Kuhn and Jason Richmond, executives at Headspace, the world's most comprehensive digital mental health platform. And they just released a fascinating new report. It's the fifth annual Workforce Attitudes toward Mental Health Report. So you'll want to stay tuned. But first, it's time for our Perfect Labor Storm segment. That's where on each episode, we focus on some disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Today's perfect labor storm is compliments of our guests at Space. In their fifth annual workforce attitudes toward mental health report, they found 87% of employees say they feel a sense of dread at least once a month. There's a technical term for that. And because this is, we're gonna try to keep our language PG on, on Googleization show, let's say the term is yikes. Because not only is 87% of employees feel dread, but nearly half say they feel a sense of dread at least once a week. And in case you think this is just a frontline worker problem or a Gen Z and millennial problem, reading it direct from your report right now, 55% of executive level employees and 59% of CEOs feel dread at least once a week. The problem is universal. And it's also 
really, really high for executives. So how well are employers responding? In a recent Gallup poll of CHROs, that's Chief Human Resource Officers, they asked to rate the mental health of their workforce. Only 1% described it as excellent. 15% considered it as very good. Quick math there, but that's 84% of CHROs believe there's a lot of room for improvement within their workforce. And get this, the very people responsible for the mental health and well-being of our employees is HR. And according to Headspace, 94% of HR leaders feel an increasing responsibility to support employee mental health, but only 41% of them actually use the benefits that are available to them. So layer this startling trend on top of the epidemic of dread and failure of HR to heal itself. Burnout within the HR profession is rampant and the quit rates within HR at all time highs. I wonder if dreading coming to work has anything to do with that. Well, I'm not gonna steal any more thunder from our guests today, Sandra and Jason, because we're going to dig into that in the next hour or so. So we're gonna talk about what's the biggest drivers of dread at work and what can you do about it? And Ira, I can't wait to hear what Jason and Sandra share with us today. As you know, just last week, I was at Ohio Sherm. I had the honor to go there and speak and was speaking on the top 10 trends for the future of work. And it should come as no surprise to anyone that's listening, mental health in the workplace, it was in that top 10. And it just so happens about this time, one year ago, the Department of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, they indicated that mental health in the workplace was reaching public health crisis levels. That's right. October of 2022 was when the Department of Health and Human Services and the U.S. Surgeon General released their framework for workplace mental health and well-being. So in other words, even our government is saying, we're reaching public health crisis levels here. We've got to intervene. We've got to fix our broken workplaces and create healthy cultures. So a year ago, when they released that framework for workplace mental health and well-being, it included five pillars protection from harm, connection and community, hello, four principles of connection, work-life harmony, mattering at work, and opportunity for growth. I'm excited to learn how these worlds are colliding with Headspace's research and their work in this area. And speaking of which, here's a little bit about our two guests from Headspace before we bring them on in just one minute. Sandra Kuhn serves as the head of commercial enablement and solution experts at Headspace. And then Jason Richmond serves as the vice president of sales solutions as well. And Headspace, as Ira mentioned, they are the world's most comprehensive digital mental health platform. And you're going to see why they are the trusted source for businesses to get mental health services right for their people in the workplace. So without further ado, let's give a warm Googleization Nation welcome to today's guests from Headspace, Jason Richmond and Sandra Kuhn. Jason and Sandra, welcome to Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. We're thrilled to have you today. Thank you. That was that was quite a, a welcome. <laughs> right. Standing, standing ovation. Everyone is very excited to hear about the work that you 
doing. And so before we dig into some of the meteor aspects, let's start here a little bit first. Tell us a little bit about you and Headspace and, and why you're passionate about this topic of mental health in the workplace. Sandra, let's start with you. Sure. So um, my background is I'm actually a licensed clinical social worker and um, had an opportunity at one time to actually serve as an on-site EAP counselor. And I saw the convergence of mental health and you know work and, and the impact it has on, on productivity. And so really wanted to kind of take that further into uh, the market and, and be able to promote and represent and, and you know a solution such as Headspace that really can make a difference uh, in a person's life as well as to an organization. Perfect. And how about you, Jason? So uh, I'm a licensed mental health counselor, much like uh, Sandra here in the state of Indiana, where I live and have been in the behavioral health space for really over 25 years. And have been on all aspects of it as a provider, worked on carriers, uh, developing and delivering programs over the years, and, and, and now the last three years at Headspace. And what really what brought me here was the, uh, the opportunity to be able to make meaningful changes in the way behavioral health care is delivered in this, you know, in this world. We, we've had a broken system for a while, and I wanted to work for an organization that was really working to fill many of those gaps that I had seen over those 25 years of, of being in the field. Perfect. And, and as you heard at the top, the word that Ira was using was dread, that there's kind of this sense of dread that a lot of people are feeling at work. It's coming out from your research. It feels like basically any research from the major think tanks around this, you name them, Gallup, McKinsey, Deloitte, Headspace, are all saying, we've got a lot of people that are miserable when they think about the work aspect, the work sphere of their life. Sandra, can you help us unpack that a little bit in terms of when we hear that term dread, what does that mean? What does that feel like and look like when we're talking about people dreading their workplaces? Yeah, I think um, our work, our workplace workforce survey actually identified a few contributors to the, to the issue of dread. One is, you know, instability, people worrying about the stability of the organization, maybe worrying about the stability of their job or the broader economy and the weight that that puts on them. You know, there, there's a lot of pressure for individuals to be very productive. No matter what type of work you're doing, the, the pressure to be more is, is very much front and center in our work uh, environments these days. And along with that, you know, kind of the, the rising expectations of, you know, maybe doing more with less, right? And, and really having to kind of carry that, that burden. It's really the, the three combinations or the three factors rather that combine to, to build the word dread is again, what our, work, our workplace survey saw. Jason, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, you know, other contributing factors that the survey showed, inflexible work schedules, having uh, work really not fit into the overall life of an individual. And then also the, the relationship with your direct supervisor or manager. So, you know, we all have, everyone has a boss and the, the you know, relationship that you have with the person that you report to has such a huge impact on sort of your overall satisfaction with your role. And Jason, to that end, and then I'm going to send it over to Ira real quick. When I was at Ohio Sherm talking about those 10 trends, you know, I mentioned mental health in the workplace was one of those top 10 trends in the future of work. Interestingly, you just brought up another one, the inflexibility. That was one of the other top 10 trends was workers 
all of us are seeking more autonomy, more freedom in how we work. But the interesting thing was that that goes beyond where you work. In other words, whether I'm working from home or in the office, the next phase, the next waves we're going to start seeing are around, I want a little more say in who I'm working with. And I want a little bit more say in terms of my shift schedule or the times of day when I'm working. And I might even want a little bit more flexibility in terms of, you know, the, the types of tasks or even the roles maybe that are involved in my job description. Did you see any things in your report around that as well, that employees are starting to think more in flexibility beyond just remote work, but other aspects of their lives as well? Yeah, we, we absolutely did. You know, the, the fact is, we always used to talk about work-life balance, right? Like there was this really clear divide between our work life and our home lives. And I think what we're seeing these days are that there's much more overlap because of technology, our ability to work from anywhere, you know, after our pandemic response and, and people working from home, it really shed new light on sort of the need to have work and, and home really find a way to coexist. And so those the flexible work hours, being able to get your work done when it fits into your life is a very attractive feature to a lot of a, a lot of uh, employees. So I do think that um, the factors that you talked about, who you work with and how you work, really do impact that overall work satisfaction. We're, in the last few weeks, we've talked about, you know, uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about loneliness. We, we talked about burnout right before. I think you mentioned, Sandra, it's probably been, I think we're burnt out about talking about burnt out, <laughs> burnout. Uh, but we, we seem to be slicing the pie or, or trying to figure out what this is. You know, dread sort of resonates because I think people can talk about, well, you know, I'm not lonely. I have friends or, you know, um, I, it's just my boss. I'm not really burnt out or I'm just tired. I just need a vacation. You know, and people come up with all these excuses. But there is a dread of people, you know, not being able to even go to, you know, really hating Sundays. I wrote this in, in a book that I wrote 20 years ago. I hated Sundays because it was month. It was a day away from Monday and you just start worrying about it. And, you know, people go on vacation and they 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 don't take a vacation. They don't rest the last three days because it's the end of vacation. It means they dread going back to work. So how can you def I mean, am I, am I right? I mean, how do we define that dread? What what does dread look like when when you ask that and say, hey, do you dread going to work? I would think that 99% of the people will probably say yes to some degree. But what what is I mean, what does dread look like? How would you describe dread, you know, in that regard? And then how does it relate to this well-being, burnout, loneliness? I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, I guess I would probably describe the look of dread as, <laughs> you know, kind of being disengaged, distracted, unable to really focus and prioritize, you know, certainly leaves room for people to begin thinking about seeking employment someplace else uh, because they're not finding the, the support potentially or feeling as though, you know, they have the choices like Jason just mentioned around, you know, their work and when they get it done. But I think that it's, it's a huge issue relative to overall productivity of the company. I would just I would just add, you know, if you think about the definition of dread, right, it's, it's really to anticipate with apprehension or fear. Mm -hmm. When you describe your experience around Sunday, 
what it is. I mean, we've all experienced that. You know, it gets to be Sunday afternoon. You start thinking about what your Monday morning is going to look like. And that those thoughts start to ruminate and even start perseverating over the idea of, gosh, I'm going to have to get up and go to work. I know what's waiting for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's the inability to be able to put work in a perfect place, I think, that leads to that sense of dread. And, and, and so, Jason, I think you led, Jason Richmond, uh, I think you'd led into that, set up this question is, what is awaiting them that makes them dread going into work? You know, what, you know, what factors are causing that dread? Because, hey, you go to work, you get paid. I mean, it, it's, it, it's not like being thrown out of a plane without a chute. You know, it's not going, you know, it's not darkness. I mean, it's a lot of people do it with no problem at all. Why why do people dread going to work? Well, it's it's sort of indicative of a larger issue. You know, the the dread is is really a, a byproduct of people not having work sort of appropriately prioritized in their lives. You know, we spend so much time at work and and these days, we're, we're spending so much time of even our after work time thinking about work that it, it takes on an unnatural or, or unnecessary even level of importance in your life. And so it starts being a higher priority than enjoying your Sunday afternoon with your family or friends. And it becomes it, it sort of starts taking on a life of its own. And I think that it's like I said, it's a larger issue of how people feel about their jobs in the first place. Work does not have to be a miserable place. It does not have to be something that you really dislike doing. There are plenty of people who have found a way of enjoying their work. And so for those of us who are feeling dread about work, then you should be asking yourself the question, why do I, why do I envision work the way that I do with dread, with it not being an enjoyable experience? And it should it should lead to some questions about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And, and that's a much larger conversation. Jason, I've got to share first and foremost, I'm glad that you used the word perseverate on the show today as one psychology geek to another. We don't use perseverate enough in the program. So thank you. Thank you for using perseverate in the program. Absolutely love that. And then the other one, too, what we're talking about, it's making me think of Joe Rogan, not his newest podcast, not the experience, but all the way back to the Fear Factor days. You remember that show, Fear Factor with Joe Rogan? And these people were like, hey, it's worth getting over my fears for a little extra money. And now we've got folks that are like, absolutely not. I don't want dread. I'm, in fact, I'm willing to get paid less in order to avoid the mm-hmm. the unhealthy stresses, the unhealthy cultures at work. And so... I guess now maybe the the question from that is why should why should employers care? Because I got to be honest with you, I still hear from some organizations that are like, "Listen, you just got to toughen up. We got to be pro- we, we got to be productive. We've got a job to be done. Thing in the market. You just got to toughen up and get through it." Why is this still such a challenge for us to get parity around mental health in the workplace and for it to be taken seriously by more organizations? Well, I I think that I think more and more organizations are recognizing that this is an important business initiative, right? That I think if you look back five, six years, it was already starting to build in momentum in terms of awareness employers had of the importance. The pandemic, of course, put a spotlight on things. It didn't, it 
there was an increase in prevalence, but it didn't cause mental health, right? There was an increase in prevalence. Mental health was an issue long before that occurred. And again, some employers were really starting to get on that wave and, and do something more proactively about it. I, in 2023, going into 24, there, I think the majority of employers are really looking to bring this to the forefront and really make cultural change so that mental health is supported, it's respected, and having that mentally healthy workforce, like I said, is a business imperative. There, there's so many moving pieces to this. And, and Sandra, you just brought up a really, really good point. And, and it's good to hear. That, that, you know, especially being out there in, in your space, that you're hearing that more companies, more CEOs, more executives, more management teams are willing to invest. They recognize the need and possibly because they can't find the people. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we can't afford to lose anybody else in our labor supply chain because of that, either because they leave the company or because they're just not performing up to par. And, and I know this was within your report that you talk about DEIB. So you talked about diversity and uh, equity and inclusion. But at the same time that there's this need or this is recognition is that we have to do better, better at employee well-being. We have to address, we have to recognize that people have mental health issues. They're cutting back on DEI <laughs> investment. So how I mean, what are you seeing there? And I know that's a complicated question, but what are you seeing there? Because it seems like, yeah, we reckon it's the same old story. We recognize the need and we're going to focus on this part of it, but we're going to ignore a, another big part of it, especially for a significant part of the workforce. Right. Well, you know, I, I think you're right that it's it's one of those dynamics and mental health really was in this same, I, I feel like was in this same category where we would take a two steps forward and then a step back and then another two steps forward and then a step back. And it, it's, it's largely based on the, I think the, the cultures of organizations embracing DEIB and then implementing programs around it. And then when times get tough and uh, economies start to slow and budgets start to constrict, I think that there are times when those programs become expendable. And I think that's, it's, it's a shame. It's a reality, but it's a shame. And my hope is, is that the two steps that we took forward, um, we'll, we'll be able to, you know, sort of weather this one step back and then take two more steps. And, and it's slow progress. And like I said, mental health was really in that same boat. I, I can't tell you the number of times that I heard employers um, say, well, our mental health spend, in our, you know, from our insurance carrier is five to seven percent of our total medical spend. So why should we focus on it? And and it, it's taken a long time and a lot of years for us to help employers recognize that it's not just the direct spend of behavioral health. It's that indirect spend that's really driving the cost. It's the cost of turnover and rehiring and training. It's the cost of comorbid conditions having depression and uh, diabetes or a chronic heart disease and the the impact that treating mental health has on treating chronic medical conditions where you really start to see the impact on spend when you start addressing mental health conditions and so i use that as an example to say that i i think that what we're going to see is um fits and starts 
and having to prove out the value of all of these efforts for them to continue to progress and grow. And an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? I remember my parents used to share that with me um, growing up all the time. And EAPs only around, the data are only around 4% of companies use the, the, the EAPs. And EAPs are just one part of the picture. So Sandra, we'll start with you on this one. Headspace is the most comprehensive digital mental health platform that's out there for companies to support their people and their mental health. Can you kind of walk us through what does that look like? What does that mean with companies beyond just the EAPs? EAPs are good. Okay, I want everyone to hear EAPs are good, but we know that they're not everything. How does Headspace come in and support the mental health initiatives to create healthy workplaces for people? Sure. Well, first of all, um, Headspace does offer an EAP and that is a little bit different, but I think the the, the essence of the Headspace solution is really to look at a full spectrum of care. And, you know, starting with prevention, which is super important and, you know, really allows for people to learn skills, to become more resilient, to maybe, you know, for, uh, stop the, the progression of something that is starting to feel like not healthy or not great, maybe stop that progression and, and really get a better sense of balance. We also want to be. We also offer the the spectrum of support around clinical, so people get coaching, they get therapy, they get psychiatry, and then I think most important, and because we don't see this very much out in the market, is having the opportunity for people to have maintenance support. So if you think about a typical experience in going to see a, a therapist, let's say, you go and you're with a therapist for X number of sessions, you feel better. And you kind of graduate, if you will, from that experience, and then you leave. And you're kind of on your own to just kind of maneuver and, and continue on with hopefully skills that you picked up in therapy. But sometimes it's just hard to remember those things in the face of a, a crisis. So really having a, a support system like the Headspace system to give you access to coaching, give you access to all sorts of skill building content as you continue on your journey after you've had clinical treatment is a really important phase. So, you know, again, prevention, treatment, maintenance, and really thinking about that cycle. I think the other piece of the Headspace offering that is really valuable and really works to support the workforce is that we know as humans that mental health ebbs and flows. It isn't a one-time experience. It isn't something that we get closure on easily, right? It, it just comes and goes and, and sometimes feels more intense and sometimes feels better. And having the headspace system around, you can, you can move among those different levels of need and different levels of care. And this is so critical too, because I, I worked in schools for a while and without me getting on my soapbox too much, there's a big gap in terms of what we're teaching adolescents in particular, you know, the whole aspect of social emotional learning and how important that is to understand oh, okay triggers and stress management and what are these these types of coping skills to be able to deal with change to be able to deal with stress in life it's almost like a whole hidden curriculum of things that we don't talk about in schools and i think that just underscores the importance of we need our businesses to be equipped to support everyone right. with those types of skills that can help them deal with the everyday stresses the, the bigger stressors too that come along and that Headspace can absolutely help with those things. 
We're going to be taking a real quick break here. Um, I can't believe we're already at the bottom of the hour. Um, we've been talking with Jason Richmond and Sandra Kuhn from Headspace, the world's most comprehensive digital mental health platform. And we're talking all things around mental health in the workplace today. And so we're going to take a quick break. And whenever we come back, we're going to continue the conversation on this path to understand what are some, some strategies and tactics within organizations where they can step forward and help all of us feel less dread when it comes to work. So we'll be right back with you on the other side of our commercial. Are your employees feeling stuck and just showing up for a paycheck? Is your workforce working harder to get back to normal than adapting to the future? It's time to help them break their addiction to certainty and develop a growth mindset. Developed by one of the world's top-rated future of work thought leaders, AQ Plus Mindset is a powerful tool to help your employees embrace change, adapt faster, and grow on the job. Conveniently delivered to any smartphone or laptop and easy to digest 5 to 10 minute lessons. Managers can sit back and watch employee attitude shift towards growth and innovation in just 30 days. Are you ready to help your employees thrive in this ever-changing, never-normal world? Encourage them to show more grit, resilience, adaptability, and unlock their potential? The journey to a growth-filled future starts with a growth mindset. Visit aqplusmindset.com or call 484-373-4300. And welcome back, everyone, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We're here with Sandra Kuhn and Jason Richmond from Headspace. We're talking about uh, solutions to not dreading going back to work. And from, but from an employer side is how do you get people not to dread coming back to work. And, and we in the first part of the show, we were talking about a number of factors that were leading up to that, how we got sorted into this mess. It's always been existing, but for different reasons, there's there's a need. Uh, but one of the, there, there's two questions I want to ask, and these are two completely separate questions. One is uh, certainly overcoming the stigma. So as we talked about a lot of the solutions you offer, you know, Headspace, Headspace offers, you know, uh, you know, everything from an EAP to coaching, to counseling, the therapy, all these services. But but that's been sort of the problem. That means people have to be willing to be vulnerable. They have to be willing to admit to their manager, hey, I've got a problem, uh, you know, and we've talked about that. So there's a stigma issue, but there's also a generational issue. And, you know, it's it, it certainly, we, we hear a lot about Gen Z being, you know, so lonely people point the fingers at social media for a lot of other things that they're depressed. You know, I'm working with, I'm teaching a class in an undergrad, you know, college and my group, I'm sure there's some issues, but in the classroom, they're engaged and they're alert and they're friendly and they're personable and they seem to be okay. But underneath, maybe there's things going on, you know, because, again, they're 19, 20, 21 year old kids. It's a scary world out there. They're anticipating getting out. They're sort of in a safe environment in college. But but then they have to go out and earn their keep uh, in, in a short time. So I, there's two things I want to address. One is the stigma that we should talk about because that's real. How do companies help people get beyond that? And HR has the same problem because your statistics show it only about half of HR actually utilizes the EAP services or the services that exist. Uh, but the other one is, let's talk about the generational first. Is this just the Gen Z, the young kids don't have the stamina, the gumption, they're weak, they're vulnerable, they've been 
the helicopter parents destroyed their, their ability or is this really universal? I think I think we're learning as as time goes on, and we're seeing that it is universal. I think the the two questions or your two topics are actually pretty intertwined because I do think that among the older generations there is a little bit more stigma. There's sort of that you know just sort of move on and get over it kind of feeling because that's how people you know were raised. But I I do think the more that we're talking about mental health, the more that we're bringing awareness to the need to have uh, these needs addressed and supported, you know, I think those barriers are breaking down. I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, to say that it's one generation versus another. I, I think that's, it's a universal experience. It's just a matter of what we've been taught and what we've learned throughout our, throughout our life as to where we can stop and ask for help and, and feel comfortable doing so. Yeah. You know what? I, I would add to that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Sandra's statement. And I, I don't think it's one generation over the other. I think what we've done is a pretty good job of working to destigmatize talking about mental health issues. There are so many campaigns and so many organizations that are really pushing toward a more open dialogue around this topic. And I think over the generations, we're starting to teach that to our to our kids. And so I think some of the younger generations, Gen Z and others, are are more apt to talk about it because we as parents have been more apt to talk about it. And in the workplace, we're talking about it more often. And so I think the stigma is is reducing. It's still there uh, for yes. sure. And we still have work to do, but I, I think we've made progress. And and I do think that uh, it's a generational difference since in our willingness to talk about it not in the fact of that we're experiencing it. I think all generations are experiencing it. And we, we are a future of work show. And so I would be remiss if we didn't start putting our Nostradamus hats on here to take a peek into what do we think the future of mental health in the workplace kind of looks like. We know what it is right now. We've got a good understanding of, of the headspace continuum of care um, right now. What does it look like in the next few years? Are there going to be advancements with artificial intelligence? Are there things around the metaverse that are going to come into place to help with delivery and scalability of supporting mental health in the workplace? What does that look like for Headspace? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that we are going to see some additional expansions in leveraging digital te and technology to, to deliver care. It's, you know, everyone knows that we have a shortage of providers out there, um, you know, the the pipeline for new providers coming to the market, whether that be therapists or psychiatrists, you know, it's tough. There's there is definitely a projection of, of shortage, especially at the psychiatry level. So we need to think differently about how we're delivering that care. Certainly, you know, through virtual delivery and some of the digital apps, those great advancements have been made. Um, I think that probably key to leveraging technology and solving for the, the access issue is un, have, helping people to understand what care they need, right? I think that as a culture, we're sort of conditioned that if we don't feel well, that therapy is where we need to go. And I'm not sure that that's always true, but how does one know whether that's what they need? 
So I'm, I, I hope and I expect that one thing that Headspace does is, is help people decide and determine where they need to go and what level of care they need. And I think that there's, there's probably more work to be done and more advancement to be done in that area to, to ensure that people are funneled in the right direction and get what they need instead of you know, potentially in the wrong direction and using resources that someone else really could benefit from. That's such a good point, Sandra. And for those who are, are watching, I'm wearing my Apple Watch today and I need it to tell me things, things mm -hmm. that I think that I would need to know on my own. Like, hey, it'll tell me, you've been sitting too long, Jason. It is time to stand up. You need to get up and walk around. And what you just shared there in terms of knowing our needs, I think sometimes we can have, you know, perceptual blindness within ourselves of not knowing when we need to ask for support, but other people might be able to recognize it. Like, hey, Jason, you've been a little bit shorter in the meetings. You know, notice some shit, is everything okay? Mm -hmm. And I, it sounds like there's gonna be some, a, a lot of things from a technology standpoint that'll come along, whether it be wearables and artificial intelligence, that'll help us detect those things in ourselves to make sure that we are getting on the prevention end of things and taking the essential steps that we need to do. Jason, are there some some other things you wanted to add to Sandra's comments around kind of what that future looks like in terms of mental health in the workplace? Yeah, I, I do. I think that part of the thing is that we're already starting to experience some of the, the future changes, even in the way that we're delivering care ourselves. You know, if you think about the old historical way that, that you would get uh, therapy as an example, is that you would look through a laundry list of a provider directory and you would make numerous phone calls to find someone who is in network with your insurance carrier and then you would wait weeks on end and from the time that you started to say gosh i really need to see somebody to the time where you actually started talking to someone could be weeks or even months and that paradigm simply doesn't work and and people when people make the decision that they're ready to get care and ready to get help, we need to meet them in that moment and provide that level of support to them in that moment. And that's exactly how we function at Headspace. Within two minutes or less of someone raising their hand, we're able to immediately connect with them, have a, a caring and empathetic interaction with them, help them to identify what's going on and what the next best steps might be. And, and it may be simply continuing that conversation with a longitudinal relationship with a behavioral health coach. And so um, I think we're starting to see some of the future already change the way that care is being delivered. And I imagine it's going to continue to evolve with new technologies. You mentioned wearables and virtual reality. There are, there's a number of organizations out there that are investing in those types of tools and resources, specifically in the mental health space. And I think that it's an exciting space to be in. It's funny, from someone who's been in the field for almost 30 years now, um, this is really the most exciting time to be part of the mental health space, the, the pace of change and the ability to create new models is, is really, it, it's faster than ever right now. So, yeah, and it, this ties in so well. Uh, next week, actually, we have Paul Zak, uh, who's a neuroscientist. He's got a company, Emergent Technology. And Jason, as you held up your, your hand, your arm and, and, and showed your Apple Watch, I mean, the wearables to, to be able to show people's not only their kind of their wellness and what their heart rate is and their blood pressure and their mood, but, you know, even the levels of engagement, you know, 
you know, where people are. So people could be in attendance physically, but not participating. And, you know, I've shared this story a couple of times when when I talked to Paul a few weeks ago about having him on the show. He held up his, his watch and he points to it and he says, you see, it's in the green. So this is a good conversation. Yeah, let's schedule let's schedule the podcast. So it, it's getting to that point where science will help help us determine that not only as individuals, but will hopefully help managers and management identify you know when you know when when's the wheel going flatter or, or you know when when is the wheel going to fall off. Unfortunately, we're we are. Uh, this is going like, way too fast. <laughs> so so many questions that we we're, we didn't get to. So. But in the in this essence of time, and to make sure that we cover something you wanted to cover, we always close each episode or start to close each episode with this question: What's something we should have asked you or that we didn't? And we'll give each of you a chance. So, what's a question you wanted us to ask, but we didn't? So I'll I'll start. I was hoping that we would talk a little bit more about what organizations can do to change culture to really support mental health. And I'm I'm thinking about the role of leaders and just really want to kind of send the message that leaders are so vital to changing the culture here around mental health. We've seen in our even in our workforce survey saw that a high percentage of, of CEOs are talking about their own personal experience. They're talking about the way that they use resources they're encouraging you know people to have the employee resource groups that that will address and be a safe place for people to come and talk about their mental health needs so this all comes from a kind of a trickle down sort of effort and i just really wanted to to be sure to underscore um, the importance that the, that leaders can have in in changing the way that we support mental health in the workplace and before we get to you jason i, I just you, you brought something up i think when i did the introduction i i introduced the wrong result from the survey because I was talking about the the individuals uh, I think it was 87 percent of people said they dreaded once a month mm-hmm. right. and, but there was a significant difference with the CEOs and the CEOs is uh, and I'm reading it direct from your report right now 55 percent of executive level employees and 59 percent of CEOs feel dread at least once a week so this is pervasive and maybe that's the recognition that hey, it's not just our frontline workers and it's just us weak people is that, hey, I've got 30 years of experience in leading the organization. And yeah, I don't like coming into work either. We need to change that. Uh, yes. There's recognition, how do we do that? So thank you. I'm, I'm glad you you asked the question that we didn't ask uh, <laughs> and answered it because it, fit, it fits so well. And, and hopefully that is part of that change in the stigma as well. Great. Jason Richmond, what, what's your question that we didn't ask you? Well, I, I appreciate the time that you've given us. And I think you asked a lot of really great questions. I would echo Sandra's uh, sentiments and appreciate her bringing that up. In the spirit of, of her answer, I think what I would say is that you could have asked how Sandra and I, or, or maybe just I, are sort of modeling this for the teams that we manage in, within our organization. Because I do think that um, as a leader, in you know in our organization and as a leader in the behavioral health you know space in general we should should model you know what we do to maintain good positive mental health ourselves open this conversation so that you know people are are seeing us as an example and so what i would tell you is is that um i um i meditate using headspace 
tools and resources on a regular basis. It, it centers me. I'll do deep breathing exercises before meetings um, to uh, sort of lower my heart rate. Um, I have a very active family life. I have an active faith-based part of my life that helps give me balance um, and allows me to be able to balance work so that it's not a sense of dread, but it rather just another portion of, of my life and one that I have some level of control over. So um, those are things that I do and just want to model that for the audience. And and that's that's a great lead off because we addressed earlier about HR leaders. And again, I, I pulled up your report again. 94% of HR leaders feel that company that the company culture is important, which is, and the leadership is important, but only 41% of HR leaders use the benefits that are available to them. You, you talked about the opposite. You're walking the talk. HR talks about it, does it, but doesn't use the, the very benefits that they're trying to make sure that other people use. I know the world's crazy, yeah. but that's crazy. That's right. The old analogy, they're trying to put the oxygen mask on everybody else, but not themselves first. So we can't believe we're coming exactly. up to the end here. Let's, let's move into our next segment here. We call this our lightning round. So we got to hear a little bit at the top, a little bit more about who each of you are and Headspace and why you're passionate about this topic. But let's get to know you a little bit more on a personal level and help our listeners do the same. So we've got a few questions here we're going to ask each of you. And Jason, we'll start with you just to get to know you a little bit better. All right. So here we go. Lightning round time. Jason, if you could spend a day with anyone in the history of the world, who would it be? You heard me mention my you know, faith-based uh, part of my life, I would I would spend a day with Jesus Christ. Um, I I can't think of a more influential person who uh, has you know influenced the world more than uh, than he did during his brief time on this planet. So I'd spend a day with him and learn grace and patience and love from the perfect example. I love it, and lots of probably mental health questions I can hear you asking him probably in that day that we would spend together. <laughs> No one better to ask about those kind of things. And then how about this one, Jason? What's something that you've had to learn that maybe you weren't very good at? Oh, uh, so I have a great example of this. As a therapist, I have pride myself on having pretty decent interpersonal communication skills, great in the therapy room, right? But as my career advanced, I found myself doing a lot more public speaking and realized that I was very bad at it. So uh, early in my career, I recognized sort of that this did not come naturally to me and spent a year, dedicated a year to participate in a group called Toastmasters, who are a group of professionals who really just train you on being a better public speaker. And so I went to weekly meetings for a year to improve that skill set and um, had to get better at it. I love it. And Toastmasters, just like we talked about social emotional learning curriculum in schools. Toastmasters should be something that all of us go through in school as well to really hone those public speaking skills. Because even though it's the thing that most people, popular word we've used today, dread, it's also one of those skills that in almost any role or any walk of life, you have to be able to speak somewhat eloquently and communicate publicly at some point, regardless of what you do. So I love that. Sandra, we're coming your way now for a couple lightning round questions. If you won the lottery tomorrow, what are you doing? <laughs> we like, go through this every week, right? So this is an easy, <laughs> easy. Um, after making sure my family was all set, I would also, um, I've always had this vision 
of building a community for people who are in transition from substance use, from domestic violence, whatever the issue, but having a community where they could live and feel safe. And then as part of that community, have a, a community-based restaurant and retail store where they could work and reskill or upskill and interact with the community to, to get back into a you know, in, back to their, their lives. And there's actually like this abandoned outlet center, not too far from where I live. And I've always, every time I drive by it, I'm like, if only I had millions, <laughs> you know, so maybe you've got, a, you've got a very detailed plan there. We I need do. to put you a winning lottery ticket. Anyone who's listening, if you have a winning lottery ticket in your hand, please consider giving some of the proceeds to Sandra. She has a very brilliant business plan here for what she's going to do in the community. I love it. And Sandra, one more for you. Mm -hmm. If you could pick any superpower, what would you pick? Okay. So I think that what I would love to be able to do is to play piano by ear instead of reading music. I was taught to play piano. I played for many years, 16, 17 years, but it was always like a really a big challenge. And I just, when I look at somebody who can sit down and just like play the piano, uh, any music, any any situation, I'm just in such awe. That would be my superpower. And I think a close second would be singing, which I cannot do. So it would really require a superpower to do that. <laughs> I love that you pick superpowers around music. Number one, that's the first time we've had that on the okay. show. Number two, I can totally relate. In fact, last night before I went to bed, I was scrolling and I came across a video of the Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer and in the, he was in the studio and one of the producers said, hey, we want you to listen to 30 second clip of a modern rock band and see if you can basically play the drums for the entire song. Right. And so he said, play it. He listened for 30 seconds. He's like, all right, I think I, I'm in tune with the music here. Know what to do. They shut off the music and he played the drums the rest of the way for it. And it was almost to the T the way that the actual drummer in the band played it. So there's something to that superpower that's really cool. Wow. Um, well, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you for being good sports on the lightning round. Again, Jason Richmond and Sandra Kuhn from Headspace, the most comprehensive digital mental health platform that's out there uh, for uh, organizations to get mental health in the workplace right. Uh, for those who are listening, you can download their latest fifth annual workforce attitudes around mental health survey and report. You can get those findings by going to www.headspace.com and you can find it there. Jason and Sandra, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experiences with us today on the show. I'm going to send it back over to Ira as we wrap up, but we hope to have you on again in the future. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks very much. And, and I'd, for anyone who wants to contact either of you directly, what's the best way? Uh, LinkedIn, email, website? How, how do they do that? Um, LinkedIn would work for me or Sandra.coon at headspace.com. Same, same here, Jason.richman at headspace.com. Wonderful. Hopefully they'll reach out to you. And definitely, uh, I highly recommend the, the uh, download the report, uh, headspace.com. And uh, very, very valuable. And uh, we'll look forward to the next year's version. Hopefully there'll be a significant improvement <laughs> in those scores. So appreciate your time. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for helping us uh, overcome some dread in the workplace. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you both.
Ira, what were some of those big takeaways for you today around mental yeah. health in the workplace? This one was, yeah, this one was really interesting and, and actually pretty easy. And and it came from, well, it came from the whole discussion, but Sandra started this when we talked about the generations. And, you know, certainly if you read the headlines, it was that, uh, you know, Gen Z and, and millennials just can't deal with stress and, you know, helicopter parents and boomerang parents and, you know, all that sort of thing just, you know, created that. The reality is, they're just more willing to speak about it. Because if, if I think about, you know, and, and again, just because the number of people have recently passed away that were in World War II, that that never, and we talked about this, I think, in another show, well, I talked about this with Gabriella Kellerman a few weeks ago, is that all these World War II veterans never really talked about their war experiences. I mean, the PTSD, because that would signify that you were weak, you were vulnerable, you were transparent, you weren't a tough person. So when you look at uh, veterans or the, the older generation, not, not the veterans of military, but just the old, older than baby boomers and baby boomers sort of grew up in this. You just don't talk about those things. And so, you know, is, is the prevalence of, of, every, of mental health, uh, of dread, loneliness, depression, is it significantly more than it was in the past, or is it just that we're now willing to address that fact for whatever reason? And the reason just may be capitalistic is, hey, we need people, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason that there was a, a force of change that made it happen. And, and that's a good thing for humanity. That's right. I think the other eye-opening ones for me today were our leaders, including our HR people, aren't talking about it either. So it's like they're trying to put, like we, we talked about the oxygen mask on everybody else on the plane without doing it themselves. And it's actually got to be the other way around. It's not selfish for you to take care of your own mental health. That's yeah. what everyone needs to hear today. You can't help anyone else unless you've got yourself in a good place with all the supports that might need to be there in order for you to then care and support for other people in your organization. And you can't expect other people to come forward and be vulnerable access to supports and resources or admit that they're having a challenge unless you as a leader are showing and modeling that vulnerability first. And I loved what Sandra and Jason shared in terms of what they're doing with their teams to do that, to model that behavior to where it is more of a multiplier effect. And we get more people comfortable admitting the challenges and then seeking the right supports to get those things right for themselves. Yeah. And real quick, I think another good sign of that, and I did mention this, that only 41% of HR leaders actually use the benefits that they're promoting for everybody else to use. Fortunately, and again, from the, from the survey, 64% uh, of CEOs use the benefits, which is a good thing because if they're using it, they recognize the need, they recognize the value of that. So uh, again, the, the people that are responsible for encouraging other people to do it really need to step up and, and show their leadership and vulnerability uh, rather than just offer it as a, you know, something that they can check off the box. 100%. So it's good to hear we're starting to move the needle more that direction. Like you said, we'll look forward to hearing next year in the report mm -hmm. and hopefully we'll see the needle moving even more that direction. Uh, we want to thank you for tuning in today um, to today's episode. Special thank you to Jason Richmond and Sandra Kuhn, our honored guests today from Headspace, as we took a deep dive into mental health in the workplace. Thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast and the show, please do so. We're on all the major podcast platforms, and you can also subscribe on YouTube. 
You can follow Googleization Nation on Instagram as well. Because of you, as Ira mentioned at the top, lots to celebrate this week. We're in the top 100 of all business podcasts in the world in total popularity. And we continue to be in across all podcast genres and types in the top one to one and a half percent in the world. So thank you to our guests. Thank you to our listeners for making that possible. And until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you again for being part of Googleization Nation and ditto on everything else that Jason said. Until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans. Thanks for listening to Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. This show was produced and edited by Hilton Productions.